We are taking a break from Matthew, and let's just spend, we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament taking a look at several key people who played a role in God's redemptive story. Um, I want to start by reading a passage from Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Um, so if you would, turn to Hebrews 11. It's, Hebrews 11 is one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. Um, it's so often called the Hall of Faith. You know, we're, we're familiar in sports, the Hall of Fame, but now we're talking about the Hall of Faith. And so if you've ever read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, I love it because the author of Hebrews goes back and sh- shares all the big, important characters of the Old Testament that you learned in Sunday school as a child. It's so often that um, he describes the many people throughout the Old Testament who exhibited faith beyond measure because of their trust in God. We look at so many Bible characters that most of you are probably familiar with, but a few you probably aren't. Um, so turn in your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and read that with me. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So for some reason, many evangelicals today, I think the import, they underestimate the importance of the story of Noah and in the redemptive history. Perhaps the reason is because I think we often associate Noah with uh, more of a, it's a piece of literature that you associate with uh, children in Sunday school. And we kind of miss the uh, the true essence of Noah and, and the story of Noah. So the author of Hebrews tells us many things about Noah that really is very essential to the biblical theology. First, Noah believed God's warning of a coming flood, which was an event not yet seen. So please remember that, not yet seen. This highlights the nature of true faith and adds emphasis to the verse found in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Hebrews 11 verse 1, if you remember, says faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. Oftentimes we put faith in God because of what happened in the past. I believe I, in a past sermon I talked about that, how you put your faith in God and remembering what he has done for you in the past. I think it was about a year ago when I spoke about we're looking for a sign in heaven. The Pharisees were, but why don't we look at what God has already done for us? Okay, so we're going, it's kind of the same scenario here. Okay, in other words, Noah believed in divine revelation, even in matters of anticipating prophecy. So Noah hasn't even experienced what is about to happen, but yet he is already having faith. Second, this passage tells us in Hebrews that Noah constructed the ark and was motivated by godly fear. Now, Noah recognized the holiness of God. He is wonderfully gracious, but that grace is only truly known against the the dark backdrop of his justice and wrath against us. Then it says, by faith, he condemned the world. Now, how could Noah condemn the world? He's a man. Well, it's not that Noah sat in a judge's seat and was judging all the people of the world. That's not what was taking place. Rather, whenever an individual lives in obedience of God against the morality of the world, their immorality of the world, excuse me, the individual condemns the rest of the world of its unrighteousness. Let me put it this way. What happens to you if you turn on a, a light in a darkened room? It gets, it gets light. The light stands out from the darkness. 
And what happened, what had previously been unseen is revealed for what it truly is. Often we do not even recognize how dark our environment has become until someone shines a light on it. The obedience of a righteous man reveals and condemns the disobedience of the people around them. Often that is why Christians experience persecution. They remind them that what they are doing is wrong and they don't like that. Don't remind me that I'm a sinner. I don't want to hear that. You know, it's interesting that hundreds of years ago, instead of saying God, it was providence, and now it's saying God. And and in today's world, God is more of a little G than it is a big G, and it's more relative. So God to you is not God to me. So people aren't really offended when you say God. And, you know, well, you know, God helped me through that, or God did this. You know, people are like, oh, that's great. Okay, because in their mind, they're thinking, well, this is my God or this is my God. But when you say Jesus, that's a whole different story. Um, when I was living in Quincy um, as a youth pastor, I heard of a, a church down the down the road that was thinking about taking their cross down off outside of the church because it offended people. Well, it's supposed to, <laughs> you know, the cross offends because it reminds you of, of who you are. Okay, so so let me ask you this question today. Have you ever been placed in a position where you couldn't see the outcome? Did you still exhibit faith even though you couldn't see the outcome? And has your faith lit up a darkened room? My purpose for sharing this message today is that oftentimes we see our own limitations and can't get past them because we don't see the bigger picture. We oftentimes make excuses, seeing only our weaknesses, and oftentimes we fail to see how God is working through us. God will provide the tools and strength that we need if we trust in Him. So today, we're going to look through the life of Abraham and how God taught him three lessons of faith. Um, if you would, let's bow and have a word of prayer. God, I thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Lord, I thank you um, just to have the uh, privilege to speak uh, at Ramsey Creek and God just to, uh, I just ask that you would open up our hearts today um, and teach us um, what it is to, to live a life of faith, to not know what's in the future, God, to, to get past our own limitations and, and see you at work in us. Um, Father, I just pray that I can be a vessel today to, to, that you'd speak through me and that they can hear, um, God, your message. But God, thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. So the first lesson we can learn through the life of Abraham is God teaches Abram a lesson about an uncharted future. Notice I said Abraham and then I said Abram. I'll explain that later. But this is before his covenant was renewed. Um, and so right now his name is Abram. God teaches Abram a lesson about an uncharted future. So turn with me to chapter 12. Um, we'll read verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 9. We're going to mostly stay in Genesis today, and you might keep a finger in Hebrews 11. We'll flip back to there um, a couple of times as well. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless... Those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he had set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at the Shechem. And at the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will go, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. Um, the inclusion of Abraham as the hall of faith is expected, but is also significant. See, we look at other Old Testament characters uh, before Abraham. We look at Abel, Enoch, Noah, and they're figures of who came before the formation of Israel. Okay, So in other words, they are just as much as a part of the story um, of humanity and a part of Israel's story, but Abraham is the fountainhead of the nation. You remember the song, Abraham had many sons? Okay, we start with Abraham. He, he was a fountainhead of the nation. If Abraham lived by faith in the promises of God and the coming Messiah, then the implication is that all Jews should do the same. If the readers of Hebrews think to reject Christ is to embrace Abraham, they are wrong. To embrace Christ, in fact, is to walk in accord with Abraham. As we just read the section in Genesis, it shows clearly that Abraham's faith is seen in the fact that he left his home country in Mesopotamia in obedience to God, even though he had no idea where he was going. Of course, this may not look to you as um, a remarkable act of faith, if you will, but um, it might be because you don't understand a lot about the ancient Near East. So the Mesopotamian world could be very dangerous at this time. Actually, it was very dangerous. And if you weren't traveling with uh, a knit group of people, a community, um, a small nation, or a family clan, um, you were most likely susceptible to uh, murderous people and uh, thieves. Okay, So it was a very, very dangerous uh, place to go. And if you, if you recount the Israelites going from place to place on the way to the Promised Land, how many times did they run against uh, evil foes. They ran against a lot of people, um, people of Jericho, you know, the other people that they were fighting against. So lots of times they were in, they were in danger. Okay, but he trusted in God regardless. So Abraham, uh, so for Abraham to even leave his homeland to a land that he did not know is indeed a remarkable act of the trust in God. Um, this takes me back to uh, the song that we just sang, uh, Oceans by Hillsong. Spirit, lead me where my faith is without borders. He's going somewhere where he has no idea where he's going. Take me somewhere without borders. Um, perfect fit. We see that in other parts of Scripture where Jesus tells groups of fishermen to leave their jobs and come follow him without knowing where they are going. Uh, take a look at Matthew four eighteen through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. I will come make you fishers of men. We also see in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, the calling of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting on the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners 
came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and with the sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go on and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So for Matthew, he recognized that he was spiritually sick and he needed a spiritual doctor. Those who are sure that they're righteous can't, those who are sure that they are righteous can't be saved because the first step of following Jesus is acknowledging your need for a savior and admitting that we don't have all the answers. Abram never saw the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Uh, B. Abram was a resident in a foreign land. By faith, he beheld something that was coming, but he never saw the fulfillment of those promises of fruitful land and vast descendants. This passage also indicates that the covenant promises were passed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These three men, um, from a patriarchal foundation, if you will, of the nation of Israel, they were co-heirs of the same promise, yet never saw it come through uh, to fruition. So they were promised that they would uh, send and lead the Israelites to the promised land, but yet... All three of those men lived their whole life without getting to the promised land. But in their dying breath, they held on to that promise and knew that God was faithful in his words. The second lesson we can learn through the life of Abraham is God teaches Abram a lesson about his own timing. So if you would, turn to Genesis 15 and we'll read 1 through 6. Genesis 15 and we'll read 1 through 6. The Lord's covenant with Abram. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, a very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, who can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate, Elizar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. So God was teaching Abraham here a series of lessons. He cries out saying, well, God, I still remain childless and yet I'm praying in my tent for you to come bring Sarai and I a child and it's still not here. I'm 75 years old, God. I mean, come on. That's what he's thinking, okay? Um, but I think why God allowed him to wait so long was to test, continue to test his faith and show how powerful he was to, to give them a son even at their old age. God took him. So just imagine Abraham kind of praying in his tent and he's just kind of sitting in there and he's just thinking, oh, God, where are you at? And then he said in verse 5, he says, come out of your tent. So he steps out of his tent and then to help him see the big picture. And that's what we have to do. How, how symbolic is that? How oftentimes do we not see the big picture? Sometimes we just need in our life to step out of the tent and then look at the big picture. And, and God says, um, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars. And you just need to trust in me. Abraham couldn't get past his own limitations and didn't see the big picture. So God had to show him that way. Says, so like, step out of your tent and look up. And that's all, that's sometimes all we need to do. 
Although Sarai still didn't believe the big picture, what ends up, I think maybe possibly Abraham was starting to get the hint that it's okay to trust in God, but Sarai was in a different place. And she persuaded Abram in her timing to lay with her servant girl, Hagar, to produce an heir. Um, this was actually a very common practice at the time. If a married woman um, couldn't have a child, um, she was shamed by her peers. And so what she would have to do was uh, have her servant girl um, produce an heir for the for the man. So the child actually born of the servant woman would be considered children of the wife, even though it came from the servant girl. So Abram and Sarai were acting in line with custom of the day. Okay, it was a custom to do that, but their actions showed his lack of faith and their impatience with God. So God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. So they were kind of trusting in God. He took us out of nowhere in the desert and we're eating this nasty bread. And then, um, you know, and I'm trusting in you, but God, we're getting a lot older and, and still we don't have a son. Where's our heir? Okay, so they try to handle it their own way and said, well, God's God's sleeping or something. So we're going to. We're going to do it our own way and we're going to help God out and we're going to produce an heir for him. Well, that's not what God wanted. But God still reaffirmed his promise to Abraham because he told him that I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars. So in Genesis 17, if you would, you can just turn um, verse uh, verse one. When Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made your, you a father of many nations, and you will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So far, we've seen several people make some pretty big mistakes. Sarai took matters in her own hands and gave her servant to Abram. Abram, who went along with the plan, but when his circumstances began to go wrong, refused to help solve the problem. So in spite of their mistakes, God still renews the covenant with Abram because he said he would make many nations from him. So at this moment, God changes both their names. Um, in the Bible, it's pretty common to, uh, to have a name given to you based on your character or based on your experience. So therefore, shortly before the promised son was conceived, God changed Abram's name, which meant exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. As for Sarai, her name became Sarah. And so Abram and Sarah remained faithful in childbearing. And God granted them with a son named Isaac. Abraham was an old man who doubted that he could produce an heir. Yet despite his wavering, he is still counted among the faithful because he believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. Faith, even faith that is wavering, is still faith. And Abraham can still qualify as a man who was faithful. Abraham believed that the Lord is faithful to his promises. Sarah also believed that the one who has promised was faithful. And for that she was credited and rewarded. God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham's family. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll read 11 and, uh, verses 11 and 12. So the author of Hebrews is uh, talking about Old Testament uh, key people, and he brings up um, both Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12 
Say, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So from this one man, and he has as good as, he is as as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate what faith actually looks like. Faith looks like a hundred year old man and a ninety year old woman. Um, experiencing the the and fu- the fulfillment of God's promises, uh, even the fulfillment of those promises seems impossible according to human reason. So be careful what you pray for, and careful what you wish for. You never know. Uh, Ephesians three twenty, oh, Ephesians three twenty says, "Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus." Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the third lesson we can learn through the life of Abraham is God teaches Abraham a lesson about trusting his words. So many of you are familiar with the story um, in Genesis. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 through 18. Um, I wanted to read the whole story so we can experience what um, God was doing with with um, Isaac and Abraham. Uh, many of you are familiar with this story all the way back from as a child in Sunday school. Uh, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on that boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorn. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through uh, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
So, A, Abraham was tested with the ultimate sacrifice here. So, it wasn't that God was trying to trip Abraham up or to, you know, trick him and, or, or to watch him fall, but it was really to deepen his, uh, faith and his capacity to obey God, but really to develop his character. Just as fire refines ore to extract metals, God refines us through difficult circumstances. When we are tested, we can complain or we can see how God is trying to stretch us to develop our character. Uh, God did not want Isaac to die, but he wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in his heart so that it would be clear that Abraham loved God more than he loved his long-awaited son. Maybe you waited or are still waiting um, for something like Abraham was waiting for his son. Maybe it's you're waiting for that child. Maybe you're waiting for a job. Maybe you're waiting for that spouse to come. Maybe you're waiting for that prodigal child that you have that you pray and pray and pray that they're going to come back and, and come back to knowing the Lord. <clears throat> but oftentimes we have to sacrifice whatever it is that you want in your heart to make it clear that you still love God more than anything else. So whatever it is that you want so bad, just as Abraham had to, you have to sacrifice that in your heart so that you will um, allow God to know that you still put him above everything else. It is difficult to let go of we, what we deeply love. We could be more proper what is more proper to uh, than to love your only child? We do uh, give to God what he asks, and he returns to us far more than we, we could ever dream. The spiritual benefits of his blessings far outweigh any sacrifice. Notice the parallel, though, between the ram offered on the altar as a substitute for Isaac and Christ offered on the cross as a substitute for us. Whereas God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, God did not spare his own son, Jesus from dying on the cross. If Jesus had lived, the rest of humankind would have died. God sent his only son to die for us so that we could be spared from eternal death and instead receive eternal life with him. Um, an interesting comparison here. Uh, turn to John 3.16. We'll read John 3.16 through 20. It's on your notes if you don't want to flip there. Um, but we're all familiar with John 3.16, something that we've learned in Alana or in Sunday school. But I wish, when I was a child at least, I wish I was um, encouraged to read beyond that. Actually, all the way through verse 20, because I think there's a bigger picture here that we miss out on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, I used to say to uh, students when I was um, teaching and as a youth pastor, I would say that it's kind of like they're walking around like zombies. They're literally the living dead. Um, they're walking around, and if they don't know Christ, they're... They're just awaiting death and uh, eternity in hell. Um, and it, it is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
Well, we just talked about that with Noah. Notice, too, that it says that Jesus came to the light and to the world amongst those living in the dark who are doing evil things. For those who do wicked things hate the light because now they become exposed. When you're at work and you are living the correct way and everyone else is doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing, they get upset with you, not because you're not associating with them, but because they feel guilty because you're doing the right thing and they know they should be doing the right thing, but they're not doing it. Okay? So just as Noah was in the light of the darkness, so is Jesus. Abraham passed the test because he was committed to God's promises. The writer of Hebrews shares in chapter 11, go back to Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. I know we're doing a lot of flipping today, sword drills. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith. What the Hebrews author is doing here is just kind of summing up everybody that he talked about. Um, He discussed a lot of the Old Testament characters. Now he's saying this is what they've all done. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. The only, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They all were fixated on this promise that they were given by God, and they knew that there was something better. There was always something better. The forefathers of faith, the author of Hebrews, was describing where people of faith who died without receiving all that God had promised, but they never lost vision of heaven, a better country, or a better city. Every time you hear that, when they said a better country, a better city, that's what they're referring to. It's like there was life here, but there's something even better. You know, I think I was reading the other day how a lot of people of the generation coming up and a lot of young people struggle with um, the the reality of heaven and how great it's going to be. And I, Randy Elkhorn has a good book in heaven, but, you know, we're trying to see what heaven is like. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of people don't want to go to heaven because they like it too much here. And and that's the problem. And they, they don't understand what they're missing on. But um, the greatest thing about heaven is that Christ is there. And it wouldn't be the same without him. These patriarchs granted themselves in the faithfulness of God and in the certainty of his promises they would find something better. Following the writer's logic, when you read through Hebrews, everything is infinitely better in Christ. When he would say a better city, a better country, what he's really saying is it's all better in Christ. God promises a heavenly city, a heavenly kingdom to those who endure in faith, even unto death. We are guaranteed this city. Um, all these patriarchs mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 all felt inadequate for the task that God had bestowed on them. But by getting past their own limitations they, and trusting in God, they realized that they can succeed. God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, take a look at these ordinary people. If you follow along in your notes, I've only given you the first half, so I'll share the, the ordinary side of them and what God has done through them. In Joseph, or in Genesis 39, Joseph was a slave who saved his whole family and the nation from famine. Exodus 3, Moses was a shepherd in exile who led Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Judges 6-7, 
Gideon was a farmer who became a mighty warrior with only 300 men. 1 Samuel 16, David was a shepherd boy and the runt of the family who became Israel's greatest king. And Esther, Esther was the slave girl who saved the Jewish population from total annihilation. And Luke, Mary was a peasant girl who became the mother of Christ. Matthew was a tax collector who became an apostle and a gospel writer. And in and in Matthew again, Peter was a fisherman who became an apostle and an early church leader. So let me ask you today, do you only see your limitations? Is it difficult for you to get past your own weaknesses? Is it difficult for you to get past those limitations for you? God can lead ordinary people to do extraordinary things. As soon as you let go and let God and take the you, literally take the you out of you so Christ can fill you, and you will soon see very clearly what God can do. As we sang today, as oceans deep, my faith will rise. And it's so true. Martin Luther once said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. If you feel lost today and you are looking for guidance and wanting to know more about how to accept Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul said, Romans 10, 9 and 10, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that God can profess your faith and are saved. If you haven't accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can do that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for showing us through, God, the Old Testament today, um, these heroes of faith, God, in the, in, in the hall of faith, as they call it. Um, Father, I thank you for reminding us of our own limitations. And, God, each person in their own way, um, as I read um, when you approached them, you gave them a big task. And all they saw was themselves. All they saw was, I'm not, I'm not capable, God. I can't do that. But Lord, you showed them how. And you proved to them that you were there. Um, when Gideon was just a humble farmer and you asked him to lead this entire army, uh, he was even so it felt so inadequate that he said, God, I want to make sure that you're with me. So he laid out a fleece and, and God, he, and then, and it got wet. And then the next day he did it again. Father, you are always there, but yet we struggle to trust in you. Father, help us to come to that realization today that it's not about what we can do, but you, what you can do through us. Father, help us not to see our own limitations, but help us to see you. Father, I thank you for all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen.